Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you're here to join us in a study of God's Word. Today we'll be continuing to study Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And last week we saw that Paul wrapped up the thought that had been flowing throughout all of chapters 2 and 3. He had been teaching the Philippian church by means of examples, both positive and negative ones. And he ended by categorizing these examples into two groups, the brethren and the enemies of the cross of Christ. And we saw last week the different ends, God's glories, and mindsets of these two groups. The enemies of the cross of Christ have their minds set on earthly things. All those who are in Christ have their minds set on heavenly things, for their citizenship is in heaven. And this should be the mindset of all those who are marked as the brethren. We should be seeking the things above, for that is where Christ is seated. Yet, as citizens of heaven, there is now a tension created that we did not have to deal with before. Heaven is now our homeland, but obviously... We're not there yet. We're still living down here on the earth, no longer fitting in with those around us because Christ has made us into a new creation. We will face different ends. We worship different gods. We glory in different things. And our mindsets are no longer the same. This earth that we once called our home is no longer our home. We now reside here on earth as resident aliens. And all those who are committed to following after Jesus in the pattern that he has left behind know this feeling all too well. As we continue to walk down the path that God has laid out for us and move further and further away from those who are walking in the opposite direction, we come to realize that old friends, colleagues, and even families have become estranged to us. Our thoughts, desires, words, and lives are no longer in alignment with theirs. And the tension begins to build. No longer are we floating downstream with the masses, but instead we're now swimming against the current. And in doing so, we not only have to fight against the flood of water rushing around us, but also the flood of people trying to pull us down. And this is the tension that all those who are doing things God's way will face until we arrive in our true homeland. The world around us wants us to fail. The people around us want us to fail. And the devil desires nothing more than to see us fail. He will attack us from all fronts, attempting to find a weak spot in our defenses so that he might breach into our hearts and minds in an attempt to defeat us. But thankfully, God has not left us all alone to defend against these attacks. He has provided a line of offense to protect us from being besieged by the enemy. He has stationed his troops. He's moved in a garrison to guard over our hearts and our minds. But we must reside inside his walls if we are to remain in safety. For if we step outside of his walls that he has set up, we forfeit the protection that he has provided, and we're left all alone in our attempts to fend off the enemy. 
If you're not there already, turn with me to Philippians chapter 4 and read along in verses 2 through 9. Philippians 4, 2 through 9. I urge you, Adia, and I urge Suntuke to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So reads the word of the living God. And throughout this entire letter, we have been seeing the major themes of rejoicing and a call for unity being put on display time and time again. And it's here in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4 that we have arrived at the impetus behind Paul's frequent calls to unity. Two prominent women inside the Philippian church, Euodia and Suntuke, were at odds with one another. We don't know and we're not told to what extent this disagreement was, and we do not know what caused it and made them become at odds with one another. But we do see what Paul is urging them to do. He entreats them to live in harmony in the Lord. And Paul does this because he knows that this church will either stand together or fall together. And even though he's locked up far away in prison, he's going to do all that he can to help them keep on standing firm. So as we've already seen any number of times, he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 27. He also says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Chapter 2, verse 2. And then he showed us in the Philippians a few different ways to restore and foster unity within their church. He tells them to exemplify the humble mindset that their Savior, Jesus, patterned. And as we see here in these verses in chapter 4, he reminds them that they're on the same team and that they're fighting the same fight. Paul refers to the whole church in chapter 4, verse 1, as his beloved brethren and his beloved. And in verse 3, he reminds them that they have shared with him in the struggle for the cause of the gospel, that they are his fellow workers, and that their names are each recorded in the book of life. Paul is telling them that before the very foundations of the world, their name had been written in this book, 
And Paul hopes that this will help remind them of the universal oneness that they are to have in Christ. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 also speaks of the oneness of our faith. It says, Therefore I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one God and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. And friends, this is what the church is supposed to be. As a faithful commentator of Scripture reminds us when he says, the church on earth is called to be a replica or an ideal of the heavenly. Thus, it is against the nature of the church, the community of the redeemed, to confess unity in heaven and practice disunity on earth. Where there is disharmony inside, there is bound to be defeat outside. Where Christians cannot bear the sight of each other, they will not be able to look the world in the face either. They cannot win on the main front of their contact with the world if they are secretly carrying on warfare on a second front of their own devising. We see in our text in verse 3 that Paul, Euodia, Suntuke, his true companion, which we're not told who that is, Clement, and the rest of his fellow workers' names are all recorded in the book of life. God had appointed all of them to be a part of his church before the ages began. So Paul urges, he pleads, he exhorts these two women to live in harmony, and he asks his true companion, which may be an individual or the whole church, to help restore unity between these two women so that they and the church can get back to being what they were supposed to always be, one united front. And church, before we move on from here, I urge, plead, and exhort each one of you to look around the room and ask yourselves the same question. Are you in disunity with anyone else? For if there is disunity between yourself and another brother or sister in Christ, it will not only affect you and your families, but it will affect the whole church. As we know, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And if God's Spirit is convicting you that there are some bridges that need mending, realize that his word is also imploring you to take steps to resolve the situation so that you and the individual may make mends and so that our church can be what it was always meant to be, one united front. And whatever the conflict was between these two women, it had caused them to stray away from the bond of peace that brings unity in the spirit and had led them to disunity instead. And this is backwards of the way that that God desires things to be. For as we'll see in the remainder of this text, the God of peace desires his church to live at peace. Let's take another look at verses 4 through 9 of our text. Read 
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And as we examine the rest of the text this morning, we could take this in much smaller chunks and look at a few different topics here. But in doing so, we would miss the big picture that Paul has in mind. So we're going to look at it all together. And before we dive right into these verses, it's helpful if we examine the structure that ties them all together. For this will help us to understand it in its context. And what we'll see is that there's two sets of commands and two correlating promises. The first set of commands and promises are in verses 4 through 7, with the commands in verses 4, 5, and 6, and the promise in verse 7. The second set is in verses 8 through 9. The commands are seen in verses 8 through 9, and the promise at the end of verse 9. And we see the first command in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And hopefully this is not the first time you're noticing these words in the book of Philippians. Paul has woven this thread of rejoicing in the Lord all throughout his letter. Yet despite its frequent usage throughout this letter and elsewhere in Scripture, how often is it that we think of this as a command? Because that is what we see here. Paul is not recommending to the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord when they feel like it or only when they have a super extra swell day. No, he's telling them to rejoice in the Lord and he's telling them when they need to do it. Always. And just in case they missed the point, he says it once again, rejoice. And coming off the tail end of Thanksgiving, hopefully this has been on our minds a lot. Remembering all the reasons that we have to be thankful to the Lord and rejoice in him. Because all that we have comes from the Lord. We're told so in James chapter 1 verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every good gift comes from the Lord. And while we should undoubtedly be thankful for the gift, we must also be careful that this is not the only reason we offer thanks or rejoice in the Lord. We're not to rejoice in him simply because he gives us things. We're to rejoice in him because he is the Lord and he is worthy of all of our praise. This is the lesson that we learn from the book of Job. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but through it all, he is still worthy of our praise because he is the Lord. And as I look back on my own life over the past year, I obviously have one big, yet at the same time, kind of small right now, reason to be thankful for the Lord, my son, Kai. 
And upon finding out that Victoria was pregnant, there was lots of rejoicing in the Lord for this new gift that he had given us. But as I look back even further, I must also ask, well, what of the previous 10 years when God had not yet given me the gift? Was he unworthy to receive my praise then because I had yet to receive what I wanted? The answer is, of course, a no. No, the Lord is never unworthy to receive my praise. He is always worthy to receive my praise because all praise belongs to him, regardless of what he gives or doesn't give. And while we do rejoice in the Lord because of the things he has given, our biggest reason to rejoice in the Lord is because he is the Lord. We are to rejoice in him, not just in the things that he has given to us. And we can learn much from the prophet Habakkuk in regards to this. Habakkuk 3.17-19 through 19 says, Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hind's feet and makes me walk on my high places. And this is the first command that we see in our text. We are to rejoice in the Lord always. We come across the second command in verse 5. It says, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. And just as the outward cry of our lips should be rejoicing to the Lord, the outward action of our lives that should become evident for all to see should be our gentle spirit. And what Paul is after here is not gentleness in the sense that our culture would want to define the word, where we think of someone always walking on eggshells because they are afraid that they might offend someone by everything they do or everything they say. No, that's not what Paul is after. He knew what things to stand firm on and not budge, and he urges others to stand firm on the truth as well. What he has in mind when he uses this word, epiakes, is reasonableness, forbearance, and gentleness. Meaning that when we are provoked, we will not seek revenge. It is the opposite of being contentious or self-seeking. And as we see in our text, we should never leave home without being clothed in gentleness, because the Lord is near. We should be like the slaves in Jesus' parable who were to watch over their master's house when he went away, because they were always to be on the alert and not caught sleeping, because they did not know when their master would return. And this is how we are to go out, wearing gentleness that is to be known to all men. And these are the first two commands. Rejoice in the Lord always, and let your gentle spirit be known to all men. And we see the third command in verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And this verse right here, is the one that tempted me to divide this text up into smaller chunks. We could turn this verse into a multi-week series and learn a ton from it, 
Because so often our approach is to do the exact opposite of what we see here in Scripture. God tells us to be anxious for nothing, but prayerful in everything. Meanwhile, we're stressed out about everything and prayerful in nothing. If we got this in the right order, just imagine how grand a testimony this would be to our world. As anxiety, depression, and uncertainty continues to rise to higher and higher levels. How great would it be if the world could look to the church and rather than seeing us stressed out right along with them, they see us living our lives with perfect confidence in the Lord. And don't get me wrong, I know that we all desire to not be anxious for anything, but so often we attempt to get there through all sorts of strange means. Yet God has given us the antidote for anxiety right here. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And as we consider the implications of following these instructions, we first need to remember the details surrounding this letter. Where is Paul writing from? Who is he writing this letter to? And what is happening in history around the time of his writing? While he's in prison and he's unsure whether he'll live or be executed, he's writing to a church who is facing persecution because of their faith, and he's writing this letter around the year 61 AD, which is only three years prior to when Nero, the emperor of Rome and the Roman colony of Philippi, began to unleash horrendous persecutions upon the church. The Philippians were not facing this level of persecution yet, but it was right around the corner. And this is the backdrop that was draped behind Paul's letter. And against this backdrop, one that would be more than enough to cause tons of stress, worry, and anxiety, what do we see Paul doing? Does he send the Philippians a business card to the best psychologists in Macedonia? Or write them a script for the latest antidepressant drug on the market? No, he tells them to be anxious for nothing, but prayerful in everything. We're to take all of our worries, all of our stress, all of the reasons that we have to be anxious to the Lord in prayer, prayer, and more prayer. Not because he's uninformed about what's happening in our lives and we need to update him on what's going on, but because this is what he tells us to do. You are to cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And as biblical scholar and pastor J.A. Moiter said, the antidote to anxiety and the prelude to the enjoyment of peace are to be found in the linked exercise of prayer and thanksgiving. In prayer, anxiety is resolved by trust in God. That which causes the anxiety is brought to the one who is totally competent and in whose hands the matter may be left. In thanksgiving, anxiety is resolved by the deliberate acceptance of the worrying circumstance as something which an all-wise, all-loving, and all-sovereign God has appointed. Prayer takes up the anxiety-provoking question, how? How shall I cope? And answers by pointing away to him, to his resources and promises. Thanksgiving addresses itself to the worrying question, why? Why has this happened to me? and answers by pointing to the great doer of all who never acts purposelessly 
and whose purposes never fail. We're told here in our text, Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men and be anxious for nothing. These are the first set of commands. And look at the marvelous promise that God makes to those who are willing to follow these instructions. Do these things, verses 4, 5, and 6, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And did you get that, friends? The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds. A literal translation of the verb that Paul uses here means to keep you. It will hem you in. It will watch over you as a sentinel watches over the gates. It will guard you as a well-garrisoned stronghold. This is the promise. If you reside within his walls and stay within them, then your hearts and your minds will be safely guarded by the God of peace and the peace of God. And these are no small things to trust someone else with guarding either. So how is it that we can be so confident that he'll be able to protect our hearts and our minds from the enemy? How strong are his defenses? How strong is his peace? Look at what the text says. It's so powerful that it surpasses all comprehension. It is beyond our intellect. It is higher than our understanding. And when you experience it, the only explanation that you'll be able to come up with is that it must be coming from God because it's so otherworldly and so outside of yourself that no other answer makes sense. It is a type of peace that will honestly allow you to say to God in the lowest moment of your life, not as I will, Lord, but as you will. It's a type of peace that can say to the world, do your worst because I know my God has got me and he's never letting go. It's a type of peace that allows you to rejoice after being beaten for proclaiming the gospel. The type of peace that would have you sing praises to God while you were locked up in prison. The type of peace that allows you to look up to heaven while you're being stoned to death and cry out with a loud voice saying, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It is the peace that took the martyrs of the early church to their graves with bravery and confidence. And it is a peace that is available to you if you are willing to commit to the Lord's instructions. It will watch over your heart and your mind with eyes that never rest. It will guard over you as a garrison of troops watches over the city so that the enemy might not break in and besiege it. This is the first promise, but in order to receive it, we must be willing to obey the commands. Paul is not yet done, though. Look again to verses 8 and 9 of our text. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And the finally that we see at the beginning of verse 4 
is the same one that we looked at a few weeks ago in chapter 3, verse 1. And we can think of it as meaning, as for the rest. And what we see here is that Paul compiles a list of noteworthy things and then gives the next command. He says, dwell on these things. Take inventory of them, count them, think on them. And what he's saying is, these are the things that you are to set your mind on. And if we're truly honest with ourselves, what are the things that we're dwelling on when we begin to feel worry, doubt, stress, and anxiety sneak into our lives? And I'm no mind reader, but I can guarantee you that you're not dwelling on whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, a good repute, excellent, or praiseworthy. Dwelling on these things will lift you up, not bring you down. It's when we take stock in the opposite things that we get dragged downwards. When Peter had his eyes fixed on the Lord, he was able to walk on the water. But when he focused on the storm and doubted Jesus, he began to sink. If we look to Jonah's prayer in the belly of the great fish, we'll see him recalling the same type of thing as well. Jonah chapter 2, verses 2 through 10. Jonah says, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me, so I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. When Jonah refocused his eyes on the Lord, when he remembered him and called out to him in prayer, then he was delivered. And friends, I ask you this morning, what is it that you are dwelling on and taking stock in? If all you set your mind upon is the negative things that are happening all around us, and seem to be multiplying exponentially with each passing year, you'll be dragged down and stress, worry, and anxiety will engulf you. So stop focusing on all of those things and listen to God's word and dwell on these things. And we see the last command in verse 9. The Philippians are not only to think on good things, But the things that they have learned and received and heard and seen in Paul, they are to put into practice. As commentator Ralph Harris has said, the last and perhaps most important condition for enjoying God's peace is to practice what we have heard and seen. The emphasis shifts from right thinking to right doing. And As we've seen throughout this letter, the Philippians have indeed learned, received, heard, and seen a lot from Paul. But it's not enough to have just heard it. It's not enough to dwell on it. 
They must put these things into practice. They're not to be hearers of the word, but doers. James one twenty two through 25. But prove yourself doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty and abides in it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Our text this morning says, Rejoice in the Lord, let your gentle spirit be known to all men, and be anxious for nothing. This is the first set of commands, and we've seen the promise that waits those who obey. The God of peace will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. His peace is a guardian that never takes a break. It never stops looking for the enemy at the gates. It is forever watchful. And if we wonder how this peace can always be guarding over us, we see the answer in the second promise. God's word says, dwell on these things, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. If you are obedient, then not only will your heart and mind be guarded by the peace of God, but the God of peace will be with you. He will be with you. The God of the universe, the creator of everything, the one who is holding all things together, will be with you. He's not too preoccupied with some other endeavor. He has not left the walls of his city unprotected as he went out on a crusade. No, he is with you. Deuteronomy 31.6, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. We have seen this morning that God will take your worries, your doubt, your fear, and your anxiety and give you his peace. And I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty good trade to me. And he has more than enough to go around because it's part of who he is. He is the God of peace and he will give his peace to you, but you must obey what he has said to do. And as with another word from J.A. Moiter that we come to a close this morning, he reminds us that if we want to enjoy the promises, then we must obey the commands. But if we ignore them, then we must be prepared to forego the blessings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, come to you now and just thank you once again for your word, for its truth, Lord, and for just always being relevant in our lives and what we're seeing around us. Just pray that each of us, as we each have our own reasons to be worried and anxious and to stray away from you, Lord, that we would just hear your word that was spoken this morning, that we would be able to see the, the antidote for anxiety, Lord, uh, what you've laid out for us to be able to experience your peace in our lives and to draw closer and closer to you into your presence and into your safety, Lord. Thank you for who, are, who you are and all that you've done. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again. 
If you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose, come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue.